Well, welcome in. This is Eric Starr with the Stolar Insights Podcast. I got Sam Vestini of the Sporting News and many other things, including the Game Theory Podcast. How are you doing, Sam? Good. How are you doing, Eric? Doing good. We're here to talk some college basketball. As you all know, I'm more of an NBA guy, so I brought in Sam to talk some college stuff. We got the bracket. It's Selection Sunday. It was yesterday. Uh, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, the right 68 teams are in the tournament field. I think that they got the number one seeds right. And then the rest of the seeding is really wonky, really funky. They probably screwed up uh, in quite a few different places, including Wichita State, SMU, uh, basically the entire Big Ten. But uh, overall, I do think that, uh, you know, the right 68 teams are in the field. We're going to get a true champion at some point here, and, and that's ultimately what it comes down to. Well, that's that's good. Um, what do you, what are your, off the top of your head, kind of bet, biggest ups, potential upsets, um, most likely upsets, things like that in that first round? Yeah, I'm definitely looking at a couple of 5-12 games here. Uh, you know, UNC Wilmington has been a team that uh, has been on everyone's radar since last year, whenever they took Duke down to the wire in the NCAA tournament, 13 versus a 4. This year, they're a 12. They get a weaker Virginia team that's really struggled coming down the stretch. Uh this Wilmington team is just simply a lot more athletic than Virginia is, and that's uh, not something you can often say about these mid-majors that are entering the NCAA tournament. So uh, I look at Wilmington as a team that's really going to get up and pressure them defensively, maybe get some transition points against a team that's really difficult to get transition points against. And I think potentially they're going to beat that Virginia team. Looking at Middle Tennessee State as another 12 against an overseeded Minnesota number five line, I think they're probably closer to a number seven seed than a five. Uh, you know, Middle Tennessee State, again, another team that last year ended up beating Michigan State going to the second round of the NCAA tournament. They're actually considerably better this year than they were last year. Uh, they're 30-4. and four. They added a kid from Arkansas, Ja'Cory Williams, who's kicked off the team and then signed at Middle Tennessee in Murfreesboro. Uh this group is just a really solid offensive team led by Kermit Davis, who is going to be a potential candidate in a bunch of different uh, jobs this offseason, including LSU. So uh, I'm a pretty big fan of both those. I think that both those go down. The 512 is always the most popular upset pick, but uh, I think that both of those have a really good shot to go down. Interesting. Yeah, I just did a couple little brackets here, and I, I know nothing about college in terms of trying to pick the teams because I don't watch enough. I mean, I, I hear about the play, some of the players that are coming to the draft and things like that, and I didn't pick any, think any of those. I picked some other random ones um, just because you, you watch the games and hope that something crazy happens and hope that your picks are better than someone else's picks, but it's pretty random. But do you find yourself or experts doing better at the, on the, on the uh, brackets or that it doesn't matter because it's so crazy single elimination? Yeah, look, I mean, I probably average like the 60th percentile, whereas the mm -hmm. person next to me who's not an expert is averaging the 50th percentile. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that like I win bracket pools every year either. Like, I think I've won once in my life. So uh, I'm not going to like act like uh, the experts have a massive advantage here. Whenever you're talking about 64 or 67 independent results, mm -hmm. depending on uh, what uh, what your uh, opinion on, is on picking these play-in games. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
it's just gonna it's just gonna be a luck of the draw situation here, and they all compound upon each other because mm-hmm. you have to pick the right teams, and then if you don't win, then those teams uh, get eliminated, and you can obviously have fewer and fewer available points going down the run here. So yeah, no, I think that. I'm probably slightly more equipped to do better, but not uh, not anything crazy. I mean, I can tell you, my girlfriend beat me last year in a pool, so like, yeah. it's all luck of the draw. There's too many permutations to really do that. And so, do you like them? I've heard. I don't think I'm doing any of these brackets this year, but there's like different point values. Do you like that upsets matter, or the farther your 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 team goes that you pick to go all the way, that they count more points, or how do you like to play? I'm definitely a person that, uh, you know, likes a simple 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, mm-hmm. 32 okay. uh, point, uh, like, even distribution throughout the NCAA tournament. Just make every round worth 32 points uh, and just go from there. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what about, uh, what's your final four? Oh, boy. Uh, I honestly haven't set one yet for this podcast, though. Yeah. I will say, uh, we'll say... Villanova, Gonzaga, Kentucky, and uh, maybe maybe Louisville will go out of the Midwest. I mean, th- this is one year where I think all eight of the top teams, maybe even nine counting UCLA, mm-hmm. are all very equal in my opinion. And you, you could really have any sort of variety of uh, you know selections that you want to have in that capacity. But I- I'm going to go with those four for now, and then uh, maybe coming down the stretch here, I will uh, – We'll pick someone else. Yeah, as it goes closer. Yeah, I think I was kind of, when I was doing my brackets, I think I had UCLA, um, Arizona around there, North Carolina. Just think, I had a couple different permutations there, Kansas. But I don't think I had Villanova or, Villanova or Gonzaga. It's just really interesting to, to try to pick them out and see what happens for sure. What do you think are some interesting storylines going into this other than just who's going to win? I mean, the question that's taken college basketball by storm this year is, is Duke back? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Duke has been on a roller coaster season, Mm -hmm. uh, just twists and turns, ups and downs the entire way from Grayson Allen tripping dudes and Coach K uh, missing games earlier this year with back injury. And then uh, finally they lose three of four at the end of the regular season, then come back, win the ACC tournament in what is maybe, for my money, the deepest league in the history of college basketball. I mean, it's just outrageous, the narrative that Duke has gone on this year. Uh, I'm just fascinated entirely by that storyline. The Michigan storyline is going to be another one. They uh, had a near-plane crash going into the Big Ten tournament, then went went out and won the Big Ten tournament Mm -hmm. after, like, the players voted to play in it. Uh, Just... (laughs) One of those, like, journalist porn things that uh, everyone gets super excited to write about. Um, I mean, beyond that, I think that there are two different interesting uh, juxtapositions here. So, like, Villanova, Kansas, um, you know, even UNC, Gonzaga, these are all experience-laden teams at the top. And then, uh, you know, you have a team like Duke, a team like... Oh, uh, I'm trying to think, like UCLA is another one, where uh, you have experience-laden teams as the one seeds versus, you know, the freshman-led teams, the two, three seeds, Mm -hmm. where Florida State with Jonathan Isaac, Arizona with Lowry Markinen. Does the talented youngster kind of step up and really make the difference for these teams, or is it just going to be the experience that leads the way? It's going to be a kind of a fun NCAA tournament to track in that regard. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. 
Um, so let's uh, push it a little bit forward. Give us a the NBA draft is where we see these amazing players kind of morph and as they see where their career is going to lead them. What are you uh, envisioning for those just those top people, those top five, ten people? Just kind of who, let's get some names and we'll kind of slot in who you think are the give us a picture of who these players are in terms of NBA. Yeah, so I can tell you what my board looks like right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have Markel Fultz, number one. He's the Washington point guard who actually will not be playing in the NCAA tournament. (laughs) Lonzo Ball is sitting at number two. Uh, He's a guard at UCLA who has made a lot of waves this season for being uh, an entirely unselfish distributor who can shoot the ball from distance, who can uh, also kind of leave UCLA and totally transform their culture this season. Number three, I have Jason Tatum. He started the year a little bit rough at Duke and moved down the board a little bit, but I don't think he ever left my top five or top six. Uh, he was a guy that many NBA people around the uh, entire country uh, had as a potential number one, number two overall pick coming into the year, and he's basically lived up to that over the last mm-hmm. month. Josh Jackson at Kansas is number four, just a high motor athletic kid who has a nose for the ball, uh, highly productive wing player at a time where the NBA is really kind of searching for these wing players that can allow them to play small. Mm-hmm. And then at number five, I have Dennis Smith, who is also out of the NCAA tournament uh, with NC State. Uh, that team was just a mess this year, and uh, he ended up averaging like 18 points and six assists. He's kind of the highest ceiling player, I think, in this draft outside of Markel Fultz, just because he's such an explosive athlete. Mm-hmm. Shoot passing lanes but there's just something missing does he actually make his teammates better i think that we'll see and he's gonna have to prove that to nba scouts throughout the interview process Mm -hmm. so yeah some interesting things obviously the suns are picking in the top here and the lakers and the celtics via the nets um do you see any specific players going to other than lonzo ball to the lakers because apparently that's been destined since the beginning of time um but do you see any kind of Slot, players slotting in well too many teams? Well, I mean, are, are you talking about the Suns specifically? Um, or like Suns specifically, else? Lakers, Celtics. Um, yeah, not specifically the Suns. Well, I would say that this is a very guard-heavy draft, and the 76ers definitely have a need in the backcourt right now. I mean, uh, if they can get that Lakers pick and their own pick, they could really uh, end up making waves and getting to the point where they might be a playoff contender next season, mm-hmm. even if Joel, Joel Embiid is healthy. Uh, in terms of the Celtics, you know, their roster is relatively full right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're going to be a team that's going to be taking the best player available and going from there. I think that if they end up with that number one overall Brooklyn pick, I think it makes sense to go Markel Fultz and do your thing. Uh, the Lakers, you know, Lonzo Ball is an interesting fit there because I'm not entirely sure what it would look like with him next to D'Angelo Russell. Neither yeah. of those two guys are necessarily the best defenders at the point of attack. Uh, <laughs> Ball's an interesting player, but, you know, I don't think he's necessarily this, like, sure all-star point guard. I do think he's going to be, like, an above-average point guard in the NBA, certainly. But uh, if you're taking another guard there to potentially basically replace D'Angelo Russell on the ball, I would want something a little bit better than Lonzo, and I think that guys like Jason Tatum, uh, Josh Jackson, they're going to be in the mix there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and like I said with Philadelphia, another guy there that you could look at is Malik Monk. Uh, he would fit mm-hmm. perfectly if they're very married to this idea of uh, playing Ben Simmons on the ball constantly. Yeah. So I guess, we'll, I guess we'll do a little Sun-specific stuff. 
So I'm thinking, I haven't done enough research yet. I'm going to do it before the draft, around the draft lottery. Um, if the Suns get the number one pick, um, do they, I mean, are any of these players, uh, okay, maybe this is just uh, obvious, but are any of these players better than Eric Bledsoe? Or will be better than Eric Bledsoe as a point guard? Um, you know, Eric Bledsoe has had a great year this year. I think that uh, he's probably been like a top 10-ish point guard in the league, mm -hmm. uh, just given what he's been able to do this year and take that next leap forward. But uh, I would say that you would hope that if they get number one overall, Markel Fultz has a higher ceiling mm -hmm. than Eric Bledsoe. I'm not going to say that he's you know, this surefire yeah. point guard at the level that Bledsoe is right now. But uh, the Suns will have to decide how they want to build their team going forward. They'll have to kind of make the decision of, do we want to move on from Eric Bledsoe and hand the keys over to a Markel Fultz, to a Lonzo Ball? Or do we want to, you know, try and build from the wing again and again? Do we want to kind of just let Dragon Bender and Marquise Chris fight for that four spot and, you know, maybe draft a Jason Tatum? Uh, number one or number two? Do we want to uh, maybe draft Josh Jackson to make everyone else's lives e easier because he's a great fit on the wing with, uh, you know, Devin Booker because Devin Booker is going to be able to space the floor. He's going to be able to, you know, drive and kick and do a lot of intelligent basketball things. And Josh Jackson's also a very high IQ basketball player uh, who can really defend and who can really play with a high motor and get out and transition. So I would really like the way those two complement each other. So, uh, you know, we'll see what makes the most sense for the Suns as they, uh, I, I think that the key is finding out what direction they want to go with their roster going forward. Because mm -hmm. I think that that's a little bit unclear right now. Yeah, I think that they'll. I think they'll keep Bledsoe because I think he's the leader they need, along with Booker. Who I don't know. I was watching last night and the night before when he had the game winner against the Mavericks. There's so much Kobe in him; it's crazy, um, in just so many ways. But I think. I mean, I think that I like the Josh Jackson uh, thing there because they just got rid of Tucker. They basically their only real small forward is Warren, and now with Derek Jones Jr., who is just. He needs to put on some weight this, this uh, offseason, that's for sure. He has all the explosiveness. But other than that, they have, like, no small forwards. You can't play Barbosa and Dudley too much. And then you have, you got Chris, and you, but Chris and Alan Williams and all that. They're, they're playing pretty well. So it's you got I think that middle of that lineup there needs to be bolstered. I think Josh Jackson may be a perfect fit if Markel Fultz is not available if the Suns do not get the number one pick. So uh, that'll be interesting to see for sure. Um, what are your thoughts on the on the rookie? Oh, one, the bad rookie class that we've had because I I didn't really count Joel Embiid because he's he was drafted like two years ago, but uh, or whatever. But um, I've it's kind of been a disappointing uh, rookie class. What do you think? Yeah, I mean I don't think anyone's really surprised by that either. Uh, you know draft analysts have been saying for the last like three years that the 2016 NBA draft was going to be a disaster hmm. and we were warning people about it and it came to fruition uh, do we expect it to be like the worst rookie class in NBA history like this one probably is no but uh, I am not necessarily surprised that uh, what we've seen from this rookie class has been largely pretty weak uh, you know best rookie right now that was drafted in 2016, probably Malcolm Brogdon, I, saying, I would yeah. say. Uh, just because Dario Saric went in, I believe, 2014, and Joel Embiid obviously also went in 2014. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, what to make of 
the long-term future of this rookie class. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Suns have a couple guys that uh, they're hoping for some big things from, but, uh, you know, based on what we've seen this year, I think that, you know, there's some growth that's necessary there for them to be very legitimate building blocks. Yeah, I mean, Bender, I mean, we'll get to, we'll get to Bender, but I mean, Bender isn't, I mean, we'll see what he happens. I had a question. Was Marquise Chris this good at three-pointers in college? Oh, uh, well, he's shooting, like, what? Uh, I don't um, know. Like, 37% or something? Something like that. This I mean, year, is that right? It was surprising. Yeah, that's, like, that's what I'd say. It's surprising. Oh, no. Chris is down to 33% now. Um, yeah, this was basically what he was in college in terms of uh, three-point shooting. Yeah, he, he was a guy that was expected to be able to stretch the floor as kind mm-hmm. of a athletic stretch four potential player. Um, whether or not you believe in him as a prospect, I, I never really have bought in fully. I, I think that he was definitely worth, uh, you know, end of the lottery, mid-first-round pick last year. But what the Suns gave up for him, I certainly would not have made that decision. Really? Uh, just because, well, no. I mean, I Chris at number 15, 16 on my board last year. And, you know, if the Suns could have kept that pick, and also kept Bogdan Bogdanovich, and also kept number 27, uh, and also ended up with Marquise Chris, I think that that would have been fine. But, you know, ultimately I was a little bit lower on Chris. I think that many of the concerns that I had with him coming into last season, or coming into this NBA season, really, have borne themselves out. I mean, he's still just an incredibly low IQ basketball player. Uh, He hurts them so many ways defensively when he's on the floor and uh, I know he's been a little bit better offensively recently I think he's averaging something like you know maybe 11 points this month something Mm -hmm. like maybe 10 in February Uh, you know rebounding the ball at a reasonable if not spectacular clip but yeah I mean I've never been the biggest fan of Chris I think that a lot of the things that he does that stand out in terms of getting out in transition and leaping and looking cool. He's a basketball player that looks cool and does a lot of things in theory, but the pieces have never really come together. The puzzle really has never really come together for me. Yeah, I mean, I was low on him when he drafted him. I mean, Matt had also mentioned that when before the draft process, and I was kind of low on him as well, Matt Norlander. Um, but... Uh, I've seen some interesting things from him. I, I do agree he's a somewhat low IQ player. I mean, him and Jared Dudley are diametrically opposed. They're the opposite sides of the of the of the basketball spectrum, as it were, um, in terms of IQ, basketball IQ, and uh, and athleticism. But uh, he's shown to me some things, and he's kind of become more reliable. I think he's, from what I've seen, he's been. I think I've maybe missed one game all year for the Suns, but. Uh, he uh, has he has done pretty decent on defense. I guess there's always those those rotations where you it looks like someone else messed up and really he messed up. But he's been blocking things, obviously flashy block blocks right there. Um, but he has he has been a surprise to me for sure. Um, Bender, we'll see what happens. He's he's good. What do you think about Bender? I, I was a Bender fan coming into last draft. Uh, he's a interesting long term project though, mm-hmm. more than anything. I thought that. He would be a guy that would take some time overseas, really, before coming over. Uh, I was actually a little bit surprised that he decided to come over this year, uh, you know, before the draft process really began. Um, he's a skinny kid that's seven foot tall. That he has tremendous basketball IQ. I think that he has, uh, you know, maybe the best basketball IQ in that draft class. To be honest, you just look at the way he can pass the ball. He's yeah. always in position defensively. He really helps the Suns when he's on the floor. Uh, 
he's just so skinny. He's just not there physically yet. He's not ready. And, and this is not a surprise. I think he was either the youngest or second youngest player in the draft class last year behind Brandon Ingram. Uh, he was never going to be ready to play this year, but uh, hopefully he's getting some good experience and is uh, able to uh, really – really take that next step forward over the next couple of years so they can get some uh, very real value out of him on his rookie deal. I mean, uh, I definitely still like him more long-term than I like Chris. Yeah, me, me too. I mean, um, so that's, that's interesting. I was wondering, uh, what do you project um, Bender and Chris as in terms of positional? I've heard, I mean, uh, Earl Watson was saying he, that Bender could be a, a three, and I'm like, I think the best use of Bender is as a five because – if he can put on the weight and get that lower body strength to really stay in the post and be more of a Porzingis rather than uh, whoever, I don't know what seven-footers are playing seven, playing small forward, but what do you think on positional? Yeah, positionally, uh, Marquise Chris wants to be a three. Uh, like at the NBA Draft Combine, someone asked him who his favorite player was, and he said Rudy Gay, yeah, I don't which see that. You know, <laughs> kind of uh, sets off a lot of, you know, question marks in my brain, but uh, he wants to be a three, I think, and that's not where he's going to be most successful. He's going to be most successful is an energy stretch four who can grab offensive rebounds, uh, who can hopefully learn to play some defense, protect the weak side of the rim, and who can mm-hmm. shoot threes and attack closeouts a little bit because he's a decent ball handler for his size. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, for Bender, yeah, I agree with you. I think he's absolutely a four right now just because of uh, how skinny he is. and mm-hmm. uh, You're really hoping he can be a stretch four that can defend on the perimeter, that can protect the weak side of the rim. Uh, and then maybe he develops the bulk to be a five. But, uh, you know, right now I think that he's clearly a four. Okay, and then we'll bring up the last uh, drafted guy, that Tyler Ulis. Obviously, he was if he was five inches taller, he would have gone maybe top ten or something instead of as a five-eight guy. They actually, he actually did a jump ball with Isaiah Thomas a couple a week ago, which was hilarious. Um, but what do you see for him? He obviously has the playmaking ability that he can shoot still. Although I've seen some times where he's just like, man, if he was taller, because he just gets he just gets dwarfed sometimes. It's like he's playing with giants. Yeah, I love Tyler Ulis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's just. He's just the dude that you want on your team coming off the bench, being your backup point guard uh, every day of the week. Uh, you know, he is. I think that it's not a, uh, you know, not surprising that the Suns have been better using him as the backup point guard than using Brandon Knight as the backup point guard this year. <laughs> I am, I am, I am on the rampage for Brandon Knight every single podcast. I think. <laughs> uh, so you want to play him more or less? No, less, less. He yeah, makes me mad. I mean, I think Brandon Knight's also uh, going to be pretty good somewhere else once yep. he gets into a just better system, but it's just not working in Phoenix. But Tyler Ulis, uh, that guy's going to be a tremendous backup point guard throughout the course of his career. Uh, the key for him is kind of similar to the other two guys we just talked about. I mean, uh, you mentioned the fact that he's kind of gets dwarfed pretty regularly. Uh, it's not even dwarfed. He's just so skinny is the problem. He has mm. no bulk to mm. him. Like, you watch Isaiah Thomas, who's, you know, maybe even like a half inch shorter than he is. And the thing with Thomas is he's just so much stronger. He has more lower body strength. He has more upper body strength. He can actually absorb contact. Yeah. That's what Eulis is going to have to work on. Eulis needs to be able to, uh, you know, just kind of deal with the grind of an 82 game schedule and, uh, you know, be able to absorb the contact to actually play the kind of physical defense that he wants to play because 
He's an extremely pesky defender at yep. the point of attack. He actually won the SEC Defensive Player of the Year award last year, which I think was, you know, kind of ridiculous just because of his limitations. But uh, he really is a, a, you know, a highly effective defensive player whenever he's just in pest mode. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm interested in him going forward. I actually think he's definitely an NBA player, yeah. which is all you can hope for coming out of the second round. Exactly, and that was that was value in the second round. I love that he and Devin Booker, as best friends, are on the same team. Um, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a great situation for both of them, uh, and I'm excited to see what they can do uh, going forward. Maybe if they can play together at the same time, because uh, they do seem to just kind of fit together, right? Like Booker is a little bit bigger, can absorb some. Uh, you know, tougher matchups. If you want to use Yule's point of attack on ball handlers, that might work. Uh, yeah, I would like to see them play a little bit more together, to be honest. And uh, just personally, I'm sure it makes their lives a lot easier in terms of transition to the NBA. I mean, they are playing a little bit together now. Although the thing is, it's really hard because if you do that, you have to still play Bledsoe because he's like your best player still. I mean, Booker's close, but Bledsoe's still the best player. Comes consistency. Oh, I honestly don't even think it's that close. Like, Eric Bledsoe is a very clearly better oh, player oh, than Devin so? Booker. Um, it's just interesting to me because you look at the effect that, you know, on-off course stats are obviously so noisy in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, especially yep. when you're talking about a 500-minute sample. But, you know, the Suns' defense is eight points better per 100 possessions when Tyler Eulis is on the floor. And I don't think that uh, some of that may be noisy, but I don't think it's a coincidence that their defense is better when he's on the floor. Maybe not eight points better per 100 possessions, but I don't think it's a coincidence that it's a little bit better. Well, I think, I mean, it's also, there's also, you got to factor in that also Tucker is not there, so whenever Tucker yeah. was there, it was better, and whenever Brandon Knight was on, it was worse. And so you got to, like, also factor, and also Chris got, I mean, I know he's not good, but at the beginning of the season, he was atrocious. And Bender was atrocious, and Tyson Chandler was old, but mm-hmm. he kind of got better. And so it, it's gotten better for sure. In the, but then you're playing Ulysses, and but Bledsoe, I don't think he can guard twos consistently. He's just not big enough. I mean, he's strong yeah. enough, obviously, but he's just not tall enough. I mean, I don't, and I don't know about Booker. I was thinking when he was drafted, or um, when I started the podcast in uh, October, like Booker will be big enough to guard threes eventually. He's like six seven right now. But he's only 20. Like, wait till he's 23, and then he'll be able to guard threes consistently. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if he can provide more defensive versatility, I think the key with him is it's not even size with him. It's just actually engaging on that end consistently. Uh, as he gets older, I think that'll happen. But right now, he just needs to uh, just be more consistently engaged on that end. I mean, he gives he does so much on the offensive end for them. Like, I was watching, and I'm just like, he can... Like, I don't know if the Suns have ever had this. Someone who, if your initial play doesn't work, he can ISO and still get you a bucket. Like, I have not seen that in a long time. Um, so it's, it, it also has just, have you, can you believe his development from, I mean, maybe you already saw it when he was at uh, Kentucky, but it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's certainly surprising that he's turned into what he's turned into. I mean, he was like maybe the last five-star prospect within that recruiting class, and I obviously came off the bench at Kentucky, and that was kind of insane. He was always better than both Harrison twins, but like, uh, he is, yeah, he's just remarkable in terms of the growth that he's undertaken over the course of the last three years. I mean, the 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 comps that I was giving, or before the draft, when I heard only we only had him college tape was I don't know, uh, 
not quite J.J. Reddick, but like a shooter. Like we're thinking, okay, he's going to be a spot-up shooter. He's going to be obviously not um, not Anthony Morrow. He's a little better than Anthony Morrow. When he was drafted, I was like, oh, we'll think about that. And I don't, now we're like into the, obviously, we, Suns people get a little bit carried away, but we're into a Clay Thompson and then, like, like I said, Kobe-esque, but obviously not. he's not Kobe. But Kobe-esque, like, actual playmaking, he's tough, he's, he's trash-talking all over the place now. He's, I mean, he gives hard fouls when he should, not when he shouldn't. He, obviously, his defensive awareness on ball and off ball can be better, but he's also exerting so much energy. I mean, was he, he's averaging, like, what, 27 points a game at the, for the last couple of months? It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's averaging 21 points a game is wild to me. Uh, as a second-year player, I certainly did not expect that from him. He's 20. Uh, and, you know, the three-point shooting has bounced back uh, early in the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even last year, he shot 33% from three. He's always been a great shooter. Like, I don't think anyone was worried that he was going to be a bad uh, shooter. But I think that there was concern that he would take too many contested threes consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that's kind of worn off a little bit as he's getting into like midway through his second year so uh yeah Devin Booker is a definite building block for the Suns that uh you know is probably going to be maxed out next offseason yeah well also also to think of I don't know if you were aware of this but like is then of his first year there was no Bledsoe no Marcus Morris who didn't matter no Knight no they basically Archie Goodwin was playing point guard for them so Devin Booker was like trying to make offense where there was nothing to do he was doing all of it by himself yeah. So it was, I mean, that was wasted. That was high usage. Three-point percentage goes down. Everything's contested. He's the only person on the scouting report, basically. So it started with Bledsoe being able to play, Warren cutting, Chris doing something, and then all this, these, they're, able, they're actually able to see what Booker could be. And if you add, like, an actual all-star to this team ever, along with Booker or something, like, you can see his potential. Like, the Suns are playing people. They beat the Celtics on the game winner by Ulysses. They beat the Thunder the, the game before, and they have no All-Stars at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely a kind of a crazy thing that's uh, going on in Phoenix, just given the talent level. These guys are, uh, you know, playing hard, which is something that's incredibly important, especially at this stage of the season uh, where there's a little bit of wear and tear, a little bit of grind going. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I like what the Suns have done recently, for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, it's also to note the last just the two undrafted guys that are playing heavy minutes now, uh, Alan Williams and uh, Derek Jones Jr. Derek Jones Jr. gets second in the dunk contest. He had, he, he, I think he had no NBA dunks until the game before the All Star break, where he gets three in garbage time. But then he goes there, gets second, and then he starts lot like okay, not locking down, but Russell Westbrook and other people. He's getting really tough defense, and he's so length long, and he has so much hop. But he, I mean, he has he's skin and bones, but. What do you? I mean, did you see much from them before they were uh, went undrafted? Uh, I think that I was the biggest Allen Williams fan, like in the history of college basketball. He's the to greatest. Be like I wrote like the two features that like probably got Allen Williams more recognition uh, throughout college. I wrote the first one at SB Nation. I wrote the second one at CBS. Uh, and you know, he is—he's just the best dude. More he than is. anything, he's the nicest guy that you'll talk to. He's respectful. He's uh, he, he really is just an awesome guy uh, that, that I re- wish nothing but the best for. But he's also just a beast yeah. inside. I mean, he's an incredible rebounder. He is. Um, you watch it. You're just like, how do you get that rebound? He shouldn't. He's yeah, he, he just carves out space better than any uh, any you know maybe six foot eight, six foot seven big man in the uh, in the NBA. It's remarkable just the way he's able to do it. 
Um, he's so strong. He, he the floater. Really, again, cares. He's always had the floater game, too. Uh, the key is just movement on the perimeter mm-hmm. and continuing to develop a jump shot. Uh, is If he can do one of those two things, I think he's going to play in the NBA for a long time. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I mean, uh, Alex Len versus him, people are trying to like say that Alwyn's is better. I'm like, not yet. Let's slow a roll. Alex Len, I mean, Len is like a much better shooter, much taller, and more experienced. Like, let's not get crazy here, but it's not crazy yeah. in a year or two to get that it's close. <laughs> what I will say is this, like, I would rather have Alan Williams at $1 million than Alex Len at 12 that you'll probably have to pay him this summer. Yeah, that, that's that's the problem is that, but then also, I mean, you're going to get rid of Chandler eventually. Then you can't, but Alan Williams can't be your starting and only center that's good. So, and it doesn't right. seem like there's a center other than maybe the guy from Arizona that's coming out of the draft anytime this year. So, you can't, like, fill it in unless you're going to fill it in with a free agent of some kind. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do with Len and Chandler in the offseason. Uh, and then because of Alan, Alan Williams' emergence, he I mean, he's a solid backup center, that's for sure. But we'll see what happens with Chandler, Len, and then also with Chris and Bender, if they can slide over to five, that makes it easier if unless Watson tries to make them go smaller. Yeah, I mean... If Alex Len is your center of the future, I don't really think you have a center of the future, to be honest. Um, I mean, he's going to be a nice backup center for a good while in the NBA, but uh, and he is still 23 years old. There's plenty of time for him to improve to that next level. But, you know, right now, when I watch the Suns, everything just kind of grinds to a halt when Mm. he's on the floor. Uh, And it's, it's not like the worst thing in the world necessarily, but... Uh, given his injury history and given uh, just what we've seen from him in four years in Phoenix, I would not be trying to break the bank if I was Phoenix to bring him back in restricted free agency. Yeah, I think I'm thinking they might do it anyway, just because they're so far like under the cap, like they don't have any, like no money spent. Like Bledsoe and Knight are their biggest highest paid players, and they're going to get probably get rid of Knight and Chandler their big contracts there. But uh, I think they might do it just because. But I, I've seen some stuff from this year where he's more, more, a little more explosive, a little more uh, quick, uh, quick twitch there on, on the jumping and the moving around. But I agree. I've, I've, I'm starting a business to create basketball development and stuff. And I'm like, I want to fix your shot, Alex Len. Please come to me. I will fix your shot and stop fading away. <laughs> yeah, the fading away issues uh, definitely there. The, you know, and he was a guy that was expected to kind of live in the mid-range yep. whenever he came out of yep. college. So uh, if he can develop that mid-range shot, then he can be something real. But uh, given that, given the fact that he's not necessarily the best defensive center by any stretch of the imagination, uh, he's made some strides there. But, again, this is a guy that I think you can find other places right now. Yeah, and you can find for for the minimum cheaper later when you need to fill in that contending team. You don't need to have him on your roster when you're building like, you can search for another guy that's like that, who may have more upside or something, who may have less injury history. But, I mean, he's a good guy. He d- does his thing. He does, he works. He understands. And he's decent. But you're right. He's not anything special. Um, as we're kind of wrapping up, well, well first, we can circle back to Derek Jones Jr. Um, what do you think about him? Yeah, he, he's always been an incredible athlete, even going back to, like, his junior year of high school. Um <laughs> You know, he's 20 years old. He's, you know, basically a 
blank canvas as an athlete right now. You know, I, I think that they're trying to make him a defensive stopper, and he seems to have the mentality to where he really wants to defend. And uh, when you're that athletic, that long, uh, you really do have a chance if you decide to really get down and uh, mentally prepare to defend the best uh, player on the opposing team every night or even the best player on the bench off the opposing team every night. So, you know, we'll see. The offensive game is still not there at all. He has no real game offensively yet. But, again, he's young. Like, it's not crazy to see him develop that at some point, just given the athleticism. He's a jump shot away from, you know, like I said, being a very real prospect probably. Yeah, I mean, his length reminds me of Giannis or Durant when he was younger. Obviously, it's no offensive game, but he just has all the length and the hop. And reminds me of Sean Marion with the hop and the fast, just getting up there just randomly when you didn't think it was possible. Um, here's a more of a philosophical basketball question. Um, the Suns have about was it five players that can't drink on the, that play significant minutes, five or six. Um, and they're going to add another one in the draft here. Is there what are your ideas on rebuilding and um, player development in the game versus on the in the weight room, on the court, and like is it how many rookies is too many rookies, and how many young players is how, too many young players to be successful in the long term? I think that. It all starts from the top of the organization more than the roster within the organization. You obviously have to have some leadership around to you know, guide the young guys and make sure they're not getting in trouble, not doing the wrong things. But uh, in my opinion, it, it all starts with the culture at the top uh, and you know, filtering down throughout the levels of the organization. And uh, you know, Phoenix, I think that's a little bit unclear right now in terms of uh, is it necessarily the best culture in terms of a top-down mentality. So uh, in terms of building a roster, I don't really have a problem with building around young players. Uh, I think that it can be done. I think we saw it with Oklahoma City. Uh, we've seen it in the past with multiple other organizations. But, uh, again, it's a top-down mentality, in my opinion. As long as you have the right guys in charge at the top, it'll filter down to the rest of the organization. And uh, with Phoenix, we'll see if that ends up being the case. I do like Ryan McDonough. I think he's a really sharp guy. But mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just, you know, the ownership question is still there, and yeah. uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens going forward. Yeah, I mean Watson, and that. I guess the question was more about, say, a Bender throwing him in. I mean, okay, obviously they need to get some minutes, but I think my philosophy was that don't throw them in just to be bad and get a better pick, because it's not you're not necessarily doing that player any favors. Like throwing a guy who's not starting off in there. Are they going to get some bad habits? Are they going to just become better? Like throwing a player like Bender, who's not who's a project in the game, significant minutes. People are advocating and playing 25 minutes a game. Does that make him worse? Does that make him better? Does that not matter? Is it the weight room all that matters at this point? I mean, with Bender, the guy's going to be a totally different player with totally different, you know, mechanical bodily movements within the next three years even, just because his body's going to keep filling out. It's going to yeah. be totally different. Uh, and maybe, you know, having him be out there and, you know, recognizing things uh, as they happen, you know, maybe that's a smart move, maybe not. Uh, it's Again, to me, it's having the right guys in place, having the right guys to teach these players to be in the right situation. Make mm-hmm. sure that you're getting through them in terms of uh, film sessions and uh, developmental staff. Everything that goes with uh, having young players. Again, I'm not philosophically opposed to having young players. You just need to mm-hmm. actually 
insulate them and give them the right kind of structure to be successful. Yeah, me too. I think young players, is, I mean, you have to do, I think the Oklahoma City Thunder thing is perfect. I think they have the, the culture with Watson. I mean, people are split on Watson, but Watson, then, then Chandler, Dudley, Barbosa, um, Tucker when he was there, they brought in Ronnie Price to play, I guess, or not really, not at all. Um, so it's, I think they have the structure there. It just feels, it's crazy when people advocating bringing in, I mean, what they have, five, 20, 21 and unders, a 23, and, and um, Warren, and then they're adding, if they add, like, Fultz or something, and then people, it's just like, at some point, you become just a really young team who might be good sometime in the future, but you have no idea, and by the time that happens, you may have to lose some of those people due to contract stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that. I mean, okay. you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like, this is, uh, the, you want to create a roster situation where players can continue to grow together mm-hmm. and become comfortable with playing with each other. But you also do have to recognize just the realities of building in the NBA where you have a four-year window, essentially, to really figure out uh, how valuable these players are. And I think mm-hmm. that that's why I value older prospects a little bit more than I think some other people do once you get outside of the uh, power structure of the lottery. Like, I'm okay taking a guy that's 23 years old outside of the lottery where there's very little potential to find a star uh, versus having to wait and uh, you know having to figure out what guy is, uh, what guy is worth building around and what guy is uh, not so much a building block of the team going forward. Sometimes you hit like uh, the Suns did at 13 with Devin Booker, like the Spurs did at 15 with Kawhi Leonard, but mm-hmm. uh, you know it's definitely not a uh, it's definitely not a situation you want to be in regularly to have to hit on a star outside of the lottery. Yeah, I mean I think Bulls at 30 uh, before and Isaiah Thomas at 60, which is just a long shot. But yeah, it's it's interesting about but, that. I mean, even even saying that Isaiah Thomas was the 60th overall pick, it took him to get to his third organization yeah. to where he became what he is now. So and like, that's because they have the right. The Kings, the, even the Kings who took him at number 60, they're not reaping the benefits here. They let him go for nothing. Exactly. You know? I mean, and then it took it took to me having Marcus Smart, having all these great guard defenders around him to help him out. Because if he's yeah. on another team, it's not the same. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and then the last, I guess, the last question is about um, timelines. People are, I'm, I guess, I'm just kind of echoing Sun's Twitter and seeing what your uh, reaction is to it. Um, some people are like, trade Bledsoe, trade um, everybody because they're not on the same timeline as Booker. I'm like, Bledsoe's like 26. It's not like it's not like there's a mandate in the CBA that you have to have all your top players be within four years of each other. Otherwise, you're not allowed to win the championship. What do you think about rebuilding and timelines with with roster cores? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because you look at what Eric Bledsoe's contract is right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has two years left at right around, I think, like $28 something like that. Does that sound right? right? It's a a five-year, $90 million contract, so... Uh, four year, ninety million. So, yeah, no, yeah, a little less than, yeah, about that. Yeah, so, you know, I look at what he is going to be going forward, and with him, you run the risk of 
what if he gets hurt again mm-hmm. and his stock plummets? Yeah. You, first and foremost, you have to weigh, is he going to be a part of the next Suns winner? And I'm not convinced that that's the case, just given his contractual situation. He only mm-hmm. has two years left. I don't know that the Suns team is only two years away from uh, being a top six seed in the Western Conference. Um so you have to weigh that with the fact that he's also has a pretty significant injury history. And, yeah. you know, with Bledsoe particularly, I think it's case by case. Like, I don't really have a problem with keeping guys around that are 26, 27 years old whenever your core is 20, 21, 22. But Bledsoe particularly, I think, could see a significant loss in value to where I think it makes sense to move him in, in his situation because – I think that the Suns could genuinely get not a King's ransom back, but pretty close to a you know very strong valuation uh, of his game. Like if the uh, you know if the Sixers are offering one of the, if they end up getting the Lakers pick and they offer one of those picks plus a flyer to like that's a deal I probably accept it from the Suns just because I don't want to have to worry in the future about what Eric Bledsoe's value looks like. Interesting, interesting. I was on the on a different podcast thinking when the, that Paul George Jimmy Butler thing was happening. Like if like if you can trade, I don't know. I think the context before was if you didn't trade Booker or Bledsoe, but but based on your comments, if you trade Bledsoe and whatever Chandler Knight, what I don't even care. But if you trade him for Paul George, which obviously it's probably not going to happen, but hypothetically, if you can trade that for a small forward to go along with Booker and you can draft a Jason Tatum or somebody, then you're kind of in business there. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be wasting the Bledsoe value, to be honest, because Mm. I don't think Paul George is going to want to resign in Phoenix. Oh, you mean, okay, so so yeah. I guess I'm always assuming that if you can get them to to trade for them, you're you're knowing that they will resign. But yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, I think that, again, like the, the stars that you're hoping for there are not necessarily, uh, you know, what your, uh, you know, what the timeline is in Phoenix. So I'd probably try and get young players back, but I do understand the idea of trying to get older uh, older stars there to try and rebuild the time or restart the timeline, jumpstart it even. Yeah. But it's a tough, it's a difficult uh difficult problem to have for sure yeah that different the kind of the philosophical thing about established talent versus potential talent and how we definitely overrate potential talent as the draft nears and then as soon as it's over we kind of like recalibrate to actual free agents in july and it's kind of interesting like i mean i feel like the first round picks and stuff are super overrated those two months of june uh, or june and may or something or just June because the playoffs are still happening. But and then they kinda of go back it kinda of resets back to free agency. But yeah, it's kinda of interesting. Well Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Yeah, it's uh uh you know, one of those cases where the the theoretical value of a draft pick often outweighs the actual selection once it happens. Yeah. Which is why it's interesting to maybe trade on draft day for a young player, like, I don't know, I'm just off the top of my head, like a Terrence Ross or some, somebody like, not not the Suns, but like I'm thinking of young players who haven't quite shown their potential who may in the future, there's people all over the league like that, that, that blossom into these players and it just takes the right person and the right opportunity and that's where the leverage of a first-round pick or 
or of a player or a contract, something like that, can be shown there. So I think that's kind of interesting there. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, everyone wants the the potential variance of a high-level draft pick, even if it's kind of uh, insane, you know, and it's pie in the sky that you could potentially get this star, but... You know, once the once the pick is made, the star power goes away, and once the pick is known, the star power goes away. Yeah. Uh, so that that's why future draft picks are so valued, often to be honest. Yeah, that's why the Suns one that they get the two from Miami in a couple of years. Those are going to be pretty valuable. Yeah, for sure. Assuming that Miami doesn't sign a star this summer, which you know, who knows? Uh, Miami is a very desirable destination. I think that that was probably the theory whenever they made the Dragic trade, but. Uh, you know, we'll see. Poor Dragic, he, he signs there when they have everybody, then everybody leaves and it's just him, and he, get, he gets black eyes. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty gross whenever uh, I saw that run across my timeline, for sure. And, like, Dragic is basically just the Steve Nash, like, ten years later. That's, that's, uh, let's, let's, might want to chill out oh, on that one. I'm talking about, I mean, not really in terms of their game, but they keep getting injured, they keep getting, I mean, do you remember when he Nash got hit in the eye really bad, and he kept playing and yeah. he tried to do stuff and gets keeps. I mean, Jarius got injured feels like just as much as Nash did. It was crazy. Obviously, not the same kind of player. One's a two-time MVP. Another one hasn't made an All-Star team. But um, so anyway, that's interesting. Don't know how that got tacked on at the end there. But um, this was great, Sam. Uh, why don't you plug some of your stuff and we get out of here? Yeah, uh, you can follow me at Sam underscore Vicini on Twitter. Uh, you can uh, read my work at Sporting News, at Vice. Uh, you should check out the startup that I'm working with right now uh, at winnersview.com. And then uh, also I have my own podcast, the Game Theory Podcast, where we're going to be breaking down the NCAA tournament on a day-to-day basis uh, for the next couple of weeks. And then we kind of move into NBA draft stuff. We'll move into NBA free agency. We'll move into college basketball news and notes, certainly, once that kicks up in the off season. So, uh, yeah, if you just follow me at Sam underscore Vicini on Twitter, you will certainly find all of that work. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, follow me at Eric underscore Sar. Um, and this is the Solar Insights podcast, solarinsights.net. Um, and have a good night, everybody. Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you.